is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The FDA set this week to approve the revised and updated COVID vaccines, you know, the ones that target the Omicron variant. But there is some concern about uh, them not testing it on humans. We go in-depth into whether that concern is warranted. The Biden administration blaming Congress for the end, at least temporarily, to the program that lets you and all of us order free at-home COVID tests. So get them while you can. And NASA's planned rocket launch to the moon is delayed. We will look into why. Whipped cream adds an extra touch of sweetness to desserts, but if you buy it in a canister, there's a hidden drug danger that teens have discovered. We'll talk about that. School district in the Midwest has decided to bring back spanking as a discipline tool. Is that going to do more harm than good? Senator Lindsey Graham making a comment about riots if former President Trump is charged, connected to the Mar-a-Lago search. Could we actually see political violence and quiet quitting? We've talked about that. Uh, bosses know about it, too. And they've done this for a long time. Quiet firing. You know, and remember when we did the, the segment on quiet quitting, we actually brought up the possibility that at some point employers will quiet fire. Yes. So <laughs> I guess that's happening. I see you and I raise you. <laughs> quiet firing. Yeah. I wonder who wins that contest. Oh. We start with the COVID vaccines. Dr. Joseph Castaldo is an infectious disease specialist with Ohio Health. Doc, thanks for being with us. So uh, there are a lot of headlines the past couple of days, a lot of stuff on social media saying uh, FDA is about to approve this tweaked uh, Omicron-specific vaccine uh, without testing it on humans. But that's not a big deal at all, is it? I agree. First of all, good afternoon, Mike and Charles. Thanks for having me again. And we need to get another booster out there. You know, when you look at those people who are getting sick and being hospitalized, it's really those who are not up to date in their vaccine, specifically those 70 and older. And again, we don't want to have perfection to be the enemy of the common good. But what the FDA is doing is the exact same thing they do with the annual flu shot. With the annual flu shot, they come up with what they think is going to be the predominant circulating flu strain every spring. The FDA gives the green light on that for either a trivalent or quadrivalent flu booster. And then it still goes to the CDC's vaccine advisory committee. And that's what's going to happen now. So even though with this specific BA.5 booster, we still have a lot of data that the FDA FDA made. Specifically, we know in the real world, 600 million Americans received the original mRNA vaccine. We also have clinical human data against a bivalent vaccine against BA.1. And of course, we have animal studies looking at the antibody response to the most recent booster they want to use now. And the CDC... The Vaccine Advisory Committee is going to have a very robust review for the recommendations beginning on September 1st and September 2nd. So, uh, again, uh, the FDA is doing the best they can. We need to get a booster out there. And the fact that we don't have a clinical trial for this exact booster, I really don't think is anything that is uh, concerning because I feel quite comfortable know that the vaccine that we're using is safe. Do we have any idea how good it's going to be? 
We don't. Uh, unfortunately, all we have are animal studies showing an antibody response on the BA.4, BA.5 vaccine booster. We really don't know. And again, we don't know, too, what the trajectory is for BA.5 as a subvariant. Right now, it is a predominant circulating variant, but unlike other variants, this one is having a, a rather slow decline. So likely when we start giving this vaccine, out. Hopefully in September, BA.5 will still be there, but we still have to get boosters into people. When you look, for example, at those age 65 and above, under 30% of those that are eligible have received their second booster. They're not up to date. And that's what we're seeing in the hospital, uh, people at risk who are not up to date on their vaccines. So for people who are already convinced and already vaccinated, all of this is, is, is fine. But you know as well as I do that there are people out there, people, I'm sure, who are listening to us right now, who have never bought in to vaccines for COVID. Their argument has been from day one that this is a, an unproven technology, specifically the messenger RNA ones, the, the Moderna and the Pfizer shots. Now they add to their argument, ah, and they're not testing the tweaked one, on, on people. We don't even know how effective it's going to be. How do you make a, an argument to those people to convince them that they're wrong? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I don't know if I have all the answers, but I, I would kindly suggest that that's exactly what we have been doing at the FDA and CDC level now for decades with the flu shot. And, um, you know, with mRNA vaccines, the original series is fully FDA approved. The boosters are still under emergency use authorization. We know that mRNA technology is safe. We know about very rare safety signals with myocarditis. Um, but we know that this technology platform is safe. Uh, I would say they are not experimental and they have saved millions of lives worldwide. And we continue to know that this virus is not going away. And this is the best tool we have to really protect ourselves from dying. The Biden administration will pause its program to send people free at home COVID-19 tests this week. It's blaming Congress for failing to fund further refunds of shipments. You have to uh, or you have rather until Friday to order the tests if you want if you want them. Isn't the uh, the government doctor? And I realize that they're saying they're, they're kind of out of money, although I suppose the government does have a way of finding money when it wants it. Isn't it seems send- like they've done that before? Yeah, they've done it for lots of things. Isn't it kind of sending the government the wrong message now? I mean, on the one hand, we keep telling people the government keeps telling people you got to take COVID seriously. It's still with us. It hasn't gone away. You have to sort of make your own personal decisions about masks and distancing and all that. And then on the other hand, we're saying to people, some of whom can only get these tests for free because of their own economic situation uh, through the government. And now we're telling them, you know what, after this week, can't get them anymore. Yeah, I am concerned. You know, in our country, we're still having hundreds of deaths a day from this virus. The pandemic is still going on. And part of living safely with this virus is getting tested as quickly as possible. If you have symptoms, you can isolate yourself. And more importantly, if you have an at-risk condition, you have to start Paxlovid uh, within five days of symptom onset and monoclonal antibodies within seven days. So that is my concern moving forward. Obviously, I think it's less of a concern for people who have access to tests, those who can afford to buy them or those who have insurance to cover them. But 
obviously, as an infectious disease doctor, I've been very cognizant about healthcare disparities. And my concern moving forward is that those uh, people who come from marginalized communities will be hit hard not having access to free at-home tests. That insurance question, do you think people are actually running these through their insurance? Because I remember when you tried very early on, Charles, to go when, when this program was new and you went yes. to all these pharmacies and said, well, these are covered by insurance. They said, what? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, they, they didn't know or they pretended not to know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert on uh, third-party private insurance, and you really need to have a PhD to understand that. Some insurance companies do. <laughs> they make it easy. Some insurance companies uh, make you submit paperwork. It's very convoluted, but but you're absolutely right. And, you know, even for some people, a copay is a big out-of-pocket expense. And talking about expenses, of course, it's not just the tests, but this may very well be, as I understand it, for the same reasons – the last round of, of free COVID vaccines. And so hereafter, people are going to have to either have insurance or, or pony up the money out of their own pocket. You're absolutely right. You know, the federal government, in addition to not having any more a prepaid or free antigen tests, we know that the monoclonal antibody pre Pre-purchase supply from the federal government will be out soon. The federal government has said, as you stated, that this is the last the round of the pre-purchase vaccines. And the federal government has also said, too, that they will be phasing out the, the, the pre-purchase pack. So, uh, again, the, the pandemic is still going on. And my concern is it's really going to hit hard uh, marginalized communities. Do we ever change the definition of fully vaccinated at this point or are there still, you know, people running around with two doses saying, well, I'm fully vaccinated, you know, now two, no, three years really, ago? I, th I think the vernacular, the word we're using in public health is being up to date on your vaccines. I wish we could do a redo and really get away from saying that. I think in the setting of Omicron, being fully vaccinated is three vaccines, but uh, we're getting really away from that. We want people to be up to date on their vaccines, meaning that they have received all eligible boosters. I'm curious because I've lost track of the of the statistics uh, with the passage of time. But uh, for those who insist on comparing COVID with the flu, on average in a bad flu year, what are we talking about in terms of death, deaths versus COVID even now? Well, keep in mind, the United States, we've had over a million deaths and we're still averaging a couple hundred a day. And the flu season deaths is quite variable. You know, since COVID, we've not really had a serious uh, flu season. But uh, on average, anywhere in the United States, uh, from 15 uh, to 30 or 40,000 influenza related deaths a year. And again, that's flu. So, so COVID is still outweighing that as far as deaths and hospitalization go. And yet... To go back to the point we were making before, the messaging from the, the federal government and I dare say many state governments is that, you know, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, it's all over. Go away. Uh, yeah, if you want to wear a mask, go ahead. It's up to you. But everything is just fine. Yeah, I agree. It does create a mixed message. And again, we really have to be cognizant that the virus is still out there and to be very sensitive to those who are at risk. You know, I have immunocompromised people in my family. You probably do, too. My parents are in their 80s. And those are the people I worried about. And as a society, you know, we are judged by how we take care of those who are most vulnerable. Dr. Joseph Gastaldo, infectious disease specialist, Ohio Health. Coming up, spanking at school will return in one school district in the Midwest. And you might know now about quiet quitting. We talked about that on the show. Well, bosses have a response. It's called quiet firing. You're fired. Yeah. That's how they do it. Very quiet. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Don't that. make a scene. We're going to fire you.
Uh, right now, though, NASA's big rocket launch to the moon didn't happen. Artemis 1 blast off scrubbed this morning because of some last-minute problems. The goal, send the unmanned rocket to the moon ahead of getting astronauts there in a couple years. With us is Tarek Malik, editor-in-chief, Space.com. He was there this morning at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Uh, this means you're going to have to go back, what, Friday? Well, you know, that Friday would be uh, a good thing. You know, NASA's not really sure what went wrong with one of the engines on their new mega rocket, the space launch system, uh, what they know is that it didn't get cold uh, like it was supposed to. It didn't reach the right temperature that it needs to accept the super, super cold liquid hydrogen and liquid uh, oxygen propellant that they need to get to the moon. And, and so they really need to understand, like, why that engine's acting up. It was just one out of uh, four, and, uh, and they need to get that one in line. They also had a, a vent leak. Uh, higher up on the rocket. They're not sure why that's happened, but they want to make sure they get that under control as well. So if they can't do Friday, what's the next window of opportunity? So it's, it's a little bit murky right now because NASA went into this week with three different launch dates. One was today, which clearly they didn't make, but the other two were Friday, September 2nd, and Monday, uh, September 5th. So that'd be a Labor Day launch if they could make that work. But what they did say is that if they don't start fueling the rocket on Friday, because it's a big rocket, it takes 730,000 gallons of, uh, of fuel, if they don't start that, they might be able to try on Saturday or maybe even Sunday before that, uh, before you know having to stand down for uh, maybe a, a month or more into October because of when the moon is in the right position for them to get to uh, get there with this new rocket. Is this one of the reasons we're doing this without people first, because you're testing this brand new system and you're trying to make sure everything goes OK as safely as possible? That is exactly it. Uh, as NASA said today, this is a brand new rocket. It's a brand new spacecraft. Uh, this rocket at SLS is carrying the Orion space capsule on it. It's bigger than Apollo. It'll carry more astronauts. Uh, the SLS is the most powerful rocket NASA has ever built. So they, they really want it to perform uh, as they expect, because not only will it carry astronauts uh, to the moon, NASA wants to use it to build a space station around the moon that those astronauts will use for the home base when they explore the lunar south pole, a place that we've never seen before, but we know there's water ice there that they can use uh, to make uh, even uh, bigger bases and explore more of the moon. Now, I'm curious, and I know other people are, this isn't a reusable rocket, right? So uh, how many of these do they have? How long does it take to build them? Well, it's, it's taken them over a decade to build just this one right now, and that, that includes all of the development and all of the, uh, the research that went into it. A lot of the components might look familiar. It's got that, that orange that tank that we saw during the, the space shuttle era, only it's supersized, of course. It has two twin solid rocket boosters, a bit bigger than the space shuttle used, but it's based on the same technology and using some of the same parts. Those engines I mentioned are vintage space shuttle engines that they refurbished and modernized for this new rocket. Now, they're planning missions out through Artemis 9, uh, but they do want this to just be a continuous program to launch one a year once they get up and spinning uh, and uh, have a sustainable base, uh, not only to explore the moon, but to prove all the technologies they need to go to Mars. So they're going to build one a year to, to do this because that word sustainable, that's the whole point, right? Not just like Apollo, like we went and then we came home and there were reasons for going, but moon base and get to Mars and all of that, can yeah. they actually make it something that, that keeps going that's 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 the goal but of course as we've seen over the decades uh you know whenever we get a, a new administration or new priorities or the funding doesn't come through through congress those priorities could change now uh, i actually just uh, uh saw 
the Artemis II and the Artemis III Orion spacecraft today in various stages of construction, they are building that hardware now. Uh, and the same is true for the next space launch system rockets that are being built in, uh, in uh, Louisiana. And so, so they have this pipeline going, and the, the hardware is being made now. And uh, if all goes well with this Artemis mission, NASA wants to put astronauts on it, fly around the moon in 2024. Uh, that will set the stage for the actual moon landing in 2025. And then after that, uh, one flight a year for the foreseeable future is their goal. Tarek Malik, Editor-in-Chief, Space.com. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Whipped cream canisters are great, right? I personally like a little bit of pie with my pyramid of whipped cream all the way up. Your pyramid of whipped yeah, cream? just a little bit on the side, right? Yeah. Uh, it makes a nice swirl. It does. What's not to like, especially if you're a kid? Yeah, uh-huh. but there's a problem, apparently. We'll find out. Right now, though, uh, they'll need an adult to buy a canister of their own in New York it's against the law to sell them to anyone under 21. That's because more young adults and teens are using them. These are, again, we're talking about cans of whipped cream. They're using them to get high off of the nitrous oxide inside. Retired Army Major General Barry Price is president and CEO of Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America. Thanks for being with us. So explain again, because I'm having a hard time picturing this. How do they use the cans of, of whipped cream to get high? First of all, thanks for having me. And I want to give kudos to the state of New York for leading in this effort. Youth are inhaling the nitrous oxide found in whipped cream canisters as a technique to get high. It's typically referred to as whippets. Uh, youth incorrectly believe this method is safe and commonly learn this technique through the Internet or social media. Uh, this is similar to over-the-counter medicines containing uh, DMX or dextromethorphine uh, have you been used by minors, which has led certain states to requiring customers to be 18 years of age or older to purchase. Widespread use and availability create a common misconception that these substances create safe highs. According to the Alcohol and Drug Foundation, inhaling nitrous oxide can cause heart attacks, psychosis, uh, psychological dependence, and even sudden death. Due to the inhalant's short-lasting high, uh, individuals often inhale this gas repeatedly, increasing the risk of injury or death. In most countries, N20 inhalation uh, in recreational settings is legal and not under any medical regulation. It's easy to to relatively cheap to get a cheap high on this and and the access point is is pretty low. Yeah, you go to the grocery store. I mean, what do they do? Like break the can open and and get the little well nitrous the, oxide at, canister out of there. Or what happens at the end of the of the whipped cream is this thing nitrous oxide, which is commonly known as laughing gas, and uh, and that's where it is. Is that after the cream is is gone, there's still pressure in the can. And that's what comes out is it's not. not so it's like when it's empty and so you they, can't get any more. Right, so they, yeah. they use up all the whipped cream and then what's well, It's left. time for the rest of us to go to the store. Right. And that's get more. exactly right. Huh. And they can buy these canisters online and and, and, and smoke in tobacco shops. Uh, they, they're readily available. How much of a problem is this? I mean, the guy in New York who wrote the law says, you know, we, we're getting calls about whipped cream canisters uh, discarded all over the neighborhood. Is that is that actually a thing that's happening? 
Well, I, I will tell you that I think because of this law in New York, the word is is starting to circulate and we're helping to get the word out. But it's, it wasn't something that was commonly known. I mean, I'm, an, I'm a cool whip guy, so I'm a customer <laughs> of the tub, right? right not, the tub. not necessarily yeah. can. Yeah, so that's the thing. But I would also ask uh, parents, especially to consider uh, picking up this thing called the Parent Handbook from Operation Parent. And it's replete with uh, critical parent trainings on screen time, social media and apps, sexting, porn, human trafficking, alcohol, tobacco, nicotine, e-cigs and vaping, prescription and, and uh, over-the-counter drugs, opioids, anxiety, depression, suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, bullying, cyberbullying, dating and violence, parties, sleepovers, internet gaming and violence and driving. These are all skills that uh, that parents need to know that they aren't aware of right now. So I, I would encourage them to pick up that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, though, because kids are very inventive, if nothing else. And so if they can't readily get whipped cream cans, what other products are out there that they know about or are going to quickly find out about anyway that well, will they do the can, same they thing? Can, they can find this nitric oxide, this laughing gas, uh, you can get on, 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 on over the Internet. Can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Walmart. And so the 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 big the big thing I think is to get the word out that here's a danger that was unforeseen that that uh, most people don't know about uh, that kids have access to. You know, and and I mean, how many times have you you know used the in can whipped cream and sprayed it, and then it's just air coming out. Yeah. Nobody really thought about what that air what that air was that are meant and the potential dangers. Yeah. Let me huff this air out of the can. Now, uh, retired Army Major General Barry Price, President, CEO, Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America. This makes me look at Jell-O in a whole new way. <laughs> yes, the, <laughs> tomorrow on the show, the hidden dangers of Jell-O. <laughs> a while back, it was rather common for kids to get smacked, paddled, spanked in school by teachers or someone else there as a way to discipline them when they were bad. Now there are laws in California, many other states against it in public schools. Not all the states, though. School District of Missouri bringing back spanking if a child's parents agree comes despite warnings against corporal punishment. With us is Dr. Bethany Cook, psychologist, expert on parental guidance and children's mental health. Doctor, thanks for being here. So initial thoughts when you probably saw these headlines when they came out. Uh, I think a lot of the parents, at least people we're seeing, you know, tweeting are, are surprised that this is even allowed in some states. Still, I think there's like 19 states or something like that. Yes, 19 states still are allowing corporal punishment and everybody is shocked. We're just like, what? This is we're in 2022. What's going on here? <laughs> so I think a lot of parents are surprised that this is even going on. And maybe some kids have already experienced some of this corporal punishment in some of these states and parents don't even know about it. I was going to ask, I mean, something being on the books, there are a lot of sort of ancient laws that remain on the books in many states, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're implemented. Do we know how often this is actually used? Uh, I think there was one study I think I looked at. It was in 2013 to 2014, and it was uh, it was reported around 106,000 kids had, had experienced that at school, like some sort of corporal punishment. But we all know that not everything happens gets reported. So that's definitely a gross understatement. And I'm sure that it's happening in schools that don't really allow it. You know what I mean? It just, it, it happens. But when the law says that it's okay to do it, it's going to happen more often and potentially uh, more severe in the punishment. What do we know about corporal punishment now in 2022 that, that has 
changed over the last, I don't know, 50 years? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, number one, there's been so much research showing that children who are regularly spanked actually develop or have less gray matter in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. So that is linked to depression, mental health disorders, addiction, all of those things just from those types of um, punishments. Anyway, I'm gonna, that, I, I want to stop you there for a second because I think people yeah. are going to are, are probably thinking when you said that, how does that happen? Because it, I don't quite follow what the mechanism would be. So when a body is developing, let's say that you have a organism in a perfect environment. If that is the case, then the organism is able to develop to its fullest potential, right? There's nothing impeding that. When uh, a human is in an environment that they have to pers- they have to worry about, am I getting fed? Am I going to be hit? Uh, is somebody going to take care of me? All of these things that are not ideal, that individual's body's energy is going to take time and to develop their ability to fight back or be aware of protecting them against potential harm instead of allowing their brain to develop and think about flowers, think about colors, uh, work on the creativity. And so the body isn't able to develop to its fullest potential when it feels that it's um, or when it's in a perceived fight, flight, threatening situation. The counterpoint always seems to be that, well, you know, people will say, well, I got spanked and I turned out just fine. Oh, that's the best one. I, I used to say that, too. God, I got spanked. I had my mouth washed out with soap for cussing. I know we're live, so I'm not going to cuss, but it didn't work. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work. Um, a child, an individual never does better from being shamed. They just don't. And if a parent really sits down and, and reflects on themselves and go, yeah, well, I turned out okay. And I always want to say, really, you're okay. You potentially have depression. There's mental health issues. You're not happy. You know what I mean? I don't know what, it, who, whose standards of okay are we working from? But that is a definitely something that parents and even, you know, school teachers will, will think, well, this is what we have to do because we don't know any different. Well, uh, but I, I, research says we do know different. Go I, ahead, sorry. I, I, no, no. I, I, I was going to say, I, I guess what I don't totally get, and maybe others don't either, is that if two adults did this, unless, unless it was consenting, but if two adults did this with one another, it would be assault, right? Oh, my God, that's exactly right. So how can you? Exactly so why right. is it not assault with kids? I believe it is. I believe it is child abuse. 100%. It is not okay. And what happens is you actually, this individual is going to have a life that's been altered from this type of punishment. They're no longer going to learn. And here's the real truth. Kids are going to school hungry and tired. Let's, if, if somebody's acting out, offer to let them go take a nap. We can't as humans function in a very structured, rigid environment when we aren't, we haven't slept and we don't have quality nutrients to keep us going. And so to, to tell a kid to go sit in a chair, to smack them, to paddle them, it is ooh, high stress, high stress situation that just doesn't end well for anyone. I mean, do you read that this is already happening at home to some of these kids if the school is saying, well, you know what, we're, we're doing the option thing. You have to tell us that you're OK with it. So there's going to be conceivably parents who say, yeah, I'm fine with it, which means if you're fine with the teacher paddling your kid, then <laughs> you're probably OK with you paddling your kid. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So not only will the kid get punished at school physically, they're going to go home and probably get it 10 times worse. So it is, oh, psychologically speaking, it is so damaging. I'm really bummed out to see that this is going on. 
I'm really upset to see that people are embracing this and thinking that this is the way forward when it's not. We are it's going backwards so much. And we should mention that we did reach out to the uh, I think it's the Cassville School District in Missouri, but officials there declined to be interviewed for the show. The superintendent's given some quotes saying, look, I I wasn't like I came in wanting to do this, but he says that parents actually asked. They said, well, we need more punishment for some of these kids. What else can you do? Let's go back to this. Yeah, well, you know. That's a cop-out. Parents don't need more punishment. Children don't need more punishment. Parents need more skills. They need positive skills. How do I work with this? If you want a child to listen to what you do, even as an adult, by going and yelling at them, do you think that person's going to be engaged? Maybe they'll get the job done, but they're going to be mad about it. They're going to be cussing you out the whole time they're doing it, and it's not going to be quality work. You have to connect with an individual, with a child. You have to have them look at you and go, I respect this person, and they want me to do this. Okay, I'll do it, and that's going to bring intrinsic motivation, and they're going to be more apt to follow through with whatever consequences, non-corporal, that may be implemented. Dr. Bethany Cook, Dr. B, psychologist, expert on parental guidance and children's mental health. Doctor, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham making this statement when asked about former President Trump, the Mar-a-Lago search, possible charges. And I'll say this. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle, which you presided over and did a hell of a good job, there'll be riots in the streets. Graham made the comment talking to former Congressman Trey Gowdy on Fox News' Sunday Night in America. Now, given what we saw on the 6th of January, 2021, and with the massive political division and anger in the country, are riots real possibilities? Caroline Fredrickson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. She's also a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School. Thanks for being with us. So uh, hearing what uh, Senator Graham had to say, uh, I mean, perhaps he's right, but it still seems awfully inflammatory. Well, it certainly does. I think it's um, very uh, poorly thought through and perhaps intentionally um, to su- to suggest something like this. It's it's not clear from what he's saying if it's a prediction or really a warning, but it sounds like a warning. Um, and we, especially those of us who are in Washington, remember pretty clearly what happened on January 6th. Uh, and we know that since uh, uh, the FBI um, uh, collected all of the top secret um, and otherwise highly classified documents from Donald Trump's um, uh, 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 house in, in, in Florida, that the FBI itself has been uh, under a great deal of, uh, 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 has been under threats of violence that FBI agents are, uh, there's, you know, they even had uh, an attack. Um, and so I think uh, that, that what Lindsey Graham has said is so inflammatory and dangerous. I think this is the United States Senator who has some duty to uh, try and um, actually serve the people and not inflame riots. Because if you follow the logic, if there's logic, um, it would seem to be that the end point is, okay, no matter what you did, even if we took all of these steps to investigate and you had time to respond and you didn't, and eventually there had to be a search of your house. No matter what you did, if you're a former president and then you're even thinking of running, well, then uh, you're kind of scot-free. We can't investigate you for anything. Well, exactly. There's certainly that implication that, that, that former presidents are 
are uh, now they have a get out of jail free free card. Um, but and and that I think there has been certainly Lindsey Graham has been um, on the Trump bandwagon for a while. But this this deeper issue of uh, the idea that the process of rule of law is going to be met with violence um, really is what I think is most dangerous here is undercutting the whole idea of rule of law in America. And we don't believe, at least I didn't think so, that um, if you don't like uh, what law enforcement is doing, if you disagree, um, that your response is not to contest that in the courts, but to actually call out your militia. But let, let's say, for the sake of our discussion, that what the senator said was not meant as a threat but a warning. Uh, and, and maybe perhaps he's accurate. Maybe this is what the reaction would be uh, from a you know, somewhat sizable uh, amount of the population. What does that say about all of us? Well, I, I do think uh, it's hard to really read what he says as simply a prediction. But I think your point is, yes, that's it's problematic that the U.S., that we have a certain segment of the population that seems to be ready to rise up and, and, and uh, engage in acts of violence if their political will is not, um, is not realized, um, despite the fact that they have far from a majority. Um, but I think the way that, that Lindsey Graham framed it um, – was much less about a prediction and perhaps one would hope a, a condemnation of that kind of response. Um, but uh, more, I won't say that he embraced it, but that he he seems to suggest that it, it was um, rational or, uh, or to be expected. And that is what, again, I think is very dangerous because uh, he seems to suggest that rule of law doesn't necessarily apply here, either to a former president or uh, to uh, an appropriate response to a, pro- a legal process. To reverse it, though, I mean, this is nothing that the Justice Department doesn't know. If you, they know this, he has a high level of support. He, they know that this would inflame things. They know what happened January 6th. So to even do the search, I mean, the levels that they had to have had their ducks in the row in, are, are the highest of high. Absolutely. And I think those who have followed um, uh, the Attorney General's career, Merrick Garland, who was the chief judge of the D.C. Uh, Circuit Court of Appeals um, before he um, became the Attorney General, know that this is a very careful, cautious, uh, punctilious, thorough person. There is not, I, I would never think that what the attorney general would do would it all be um, would be based on anything but the most intense uh, examination of the question. And so when they actually went forward, I uh, I certainly have been very convinced that there is a lot there. Um, this would not have happened without um, without. Uh, and we already know that there is a, there, the, the the kinds of documents that have been removed from the president's residence from the former president's residence. Um, are, are, were such that um, could pose a real threat to our national security. They had to be recovered, um, and that, that Trump was fighting against it the whole time and leaving these documents in places where they were exposed potentially um, to, uh, to being examined by people who have no um, uh, should not be doing so, I think um, uh, raised the level of urgency for, um, uh, for the Justice Department. Carolyn Fredrickson, Senior Fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Remember when we talked about quiet quitting? That's basically when workers do only what's asked of them. 
Well, no more going the extra mile at work. Now there's a reaction to that from bosses. Quiet firing. The bosses don't actually fire anybody. They just treat everybody so bad to the point where the workers quit on their own. Gina Cox, industrial organizational psychologist, is with us. Coaches business leaders has a book coming out called Leading Inclusion, Drive Change Your Employees Can See and Feel. Gina, thanks for being with us. Uh, Both of these don't seem exactly new. I mean, especially the quiet firing. That's probably been happening for a long time. Absolutely not new, although I wish it were, because the truth is that, you know, about 80% of employees say that uh, they don't think their managers are effective at their jobs. And so what an aspect of, of, you know, ineffective leadership that I often see is that rather than just telling employees what they're doing, give them clear feedback, some prefer, some leaders prefer a more sort of passive aggressive approach. They'll just let you wither on the vine. And this has been going on forever. Do you think, though, that because of the pandemic, which really upset a whole bunch of routines from working uh, at home to, I guess, also then the relationships that would form in an office setting between employer and employee, do you think, though, that while these trends have been around for a long time, as you pointed out, that perhaps they're being now sort of intensified because of the pandemic and the after effects? Yeah, I think it's it's possible that two things are happening. First of all, you know, we know that employee expectations have changed. Employees are basically asserting uh, the desire to have a little bit more power over their entire work experience. So you can see that, you know, in the labor movement, you can see that in, you know, this whole conversation about going back to the office and, of course, regard regarding this quiet quitting phenomenon. But on the other side of that, especially if you're working remote uh, or virtually, it is not as easy to get all of the cues about what's really going on between you and your manager. And so it is very possible that just those kinds of changes have had a change, you know, had some impact on sort of exactly what employees are even experiencing or understanding about their manager's intentions uh, or desires. I would also suggest that it's probably much easier to do this this quiet firing uh, and, you know, in this kind of a disrupted environment because nothing seems typical anymore. Are we all just super passive aggressive now? And is that <laughs> the basis of a lot of this? Like, I don't want to confront it right out front or get it done quickly. I'll just do it this way. And then this person will eventually figure it out later on. Who cares? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been seeing that language, and I guess there's certainly some truth that it is passive-aggressive behavior. There's no question about that, but it isn't necessarily efficient behavior on a manager's part. So I don't know that I would, I would, I don't know exactly how you know how we got here, and and I think the pandemic and all of the disruptions have something to do with it. But this is not an efficient behavior for a manager, and it is very unhelpful to the person who then has to sort of stew and wonder what the heck is really going on. If I were running an enterprise, I would not want my managers to behave this way. I don't care whether we're disrupted or not. I would want the strong performers to know they're strong performers, the weak performers to know that they're not strong, and then for action to be taken so I can optimize performance for everybody. Because really, the, this both quiet quitting and quiet firing mean that you have a whole bunch of people, theoretically, in a group of, that aren't you know giving you everything you need to run this business. Do you think, though, that the kind concept of having a boss perhaps is just antiquated? <laughs> well, the word boss sure is. Nobody likes the word, but 
there's always going to be a need to have some kind of plan about how the work gets done. So here's what I say. I've said for, I always tell my coaching clients, look, if you're a manager, imagine that you have a dartboard in the middle of your forehead. You are the designated hitter for that group of people, five, 10, a hundred, a million, whatever that number is. And so what, so you can think about being that, you know, you have that dartboard, you could even take it and think about it as a pizza pie. You can't spend all of your time focused on task performance. There's got to be some slice of that pie that is allocated to the, you know, the experience of your employees and their human uh, desires. So in response to your question, I think the task part of that pie always requires people to say what needs to be done, when, when it needs to be done and how well you're doing it. But I don't know that we can ever get rid of, um, you know, and so, you know, we can automate that. We can do a variety of things where we can do the peer approach. We can do a variety of things. But you know what? It's the human experience, I think, that differentiates organizational success. So we need the human. I don't want to use the word boss to really be a supporter, a guide, to, to have your back. I think that's what we need bosses for. Well, how does it change when we're so fragmented now with all the working from home and coming back to the pandemic? I mean, is it easier to do either of these things? Like, you know what, I'm just going to hit deny on all the vacation requests. I'm not going to see you, so you're not going to get a raise. There's the quiet firing, <laughs> quiet quitting. Like, I'm closing the laptop at 5 every yeah. day, no matter if I'm done with work or not. You can't stop yeah. me. I'm at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what? There's some research that was done last year, well, quite a bit of it, but at Work Human, one of the things that they clearly documented was that those employees whose managers were checking in with them more often just to see how they were doing, not to give them more work, those employees were more engaged. And after all is said and done, I'll, you know, again, I'm taking this from the perspective of somebody who wants a healthy, productive environment, you know, a business, a productive business. Ultimately, you want uh, a situation where people feel like there is somebody out there who is really looking out for them. And so even if they might be, the reason that people quiet quit is when they think that there is an imbalance in either the power or the resources. In other words, they're working hard and they're not getting anything in return. They're not feeling as respected as they should. They don't have the power they desire. So from the employee perspective, quiet quitting is really about trying to seek a balance where they feel like things are a little fairer from the organizational perspective organization's perspective, I think the quiet firing is is more of sort of a passive uh, uh, aspect of ineffective leadership. The two things are not exactly the same, um, but I definitely think that it is much easier in a disrupted environment, a hybrid environment for both of these kinds of behaviors to exist and, and go on for quite some time. Gina Cox, industrial organizational psychologist, coaches business leaders, and the book coming out, Leading Inclusion, Drive Change Your Employees Can See and Feel. So I think we came up with what? That it's better to go back to noisy firing instead of quiet Get out of here. Yeah, just really loud (laughs) so everyone knows. The noisy new job seeking. Yeah. I'm out of here. Quiet stuff is very sneaky. There you go. All right. More in-depth tomorrow at 1 p.m.